Lord's love for me, the Lord's love for you is fixed. It's firm. It doesn't move. Jesus has already declared, those whom the Father has given to me, they cannot be snatched out of my hand. The love of Jesus Christ for us is firm and fixed. And so the wise man or the wise woman, when they come into the presence of the Lord, they approach the Lord and they say, Lord, the one whom you love is here. The one whom you love, Lord. I'm coming, Jesus, into your presence, not on the basis of my love for you, Lord, because I'm like a weak person, but I'm coming on the basis of your grace and your love for me. And you know, I just want to tell you this morning, let it be settled and fixed and firm in your heart. The Lord loves you. Like Jesus loves you. His heart longs for you. He chose to love you and, and he loves you like you would love a friend, your closest of friends. He loves you like you would love your child, like Mike and Sarah love Jonah. Jesus loves you like that. His heart pines for you and longs for you. So Mary and Martha say to the Lord, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. And they didn't presume. You know, you, you, you read this, and it's like they don't presume upon the Lord. It's not like, hey, you should do something because you love him. You, you, should, you should do this or that. You know, like so often we make that mistake. We come into the presence of the Lord, and we say, you know, Lord, I got this problem going on, and this is how you can fix it. <laughs> It's okay. It should be funny. It's funny that we should do that. Say, Lord, I'm going to give you instruction on how you can fix my problem, how you can solve my situation. Isaiah said this, who's directed the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him counsel? So when we come to the presence of God, we come humbly. Say, God, I need your counsel. I need your wisdom. This is not me instructing you. I've come to hear your instruction. I've, I've come for your guidance. And sometimes, you know, we instruct the Lord on what he should do. And far better, I would say this, to follow the example of Mary and Martha. They weren't commanding Jesus. They were seeking to commune with him, to, to communicate with him, to, to have him know their hearts. The one whom you love is sick. Into, into our house, Lord. Into our home, has come sickness and de death and, and, and decay and disease. Now, when I read this, you know, I think about this text and this story. And when we, as followers of Jesus, speak about sickness and, and death, there's, like, there's some like naive, ignorant attitudes that Christians can sometimes have towards death and sickness and disease. And I think it's important that we knock those down this morning, I guess. You know, the first thing that we can think in our immaturity is this, and, and it can creep into our, our thoughts and our lives even when we're mature in the Lord is that, that, that maybe only bad people suffer or those who deserve it, those who had it coming, they earned it, suffer. The, 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 godly, the truly godly person won't get sick. And sometimes when we like look at a situation and we can't, we can't see the forest for the trees and we can't figure out why there's sickness, maybe, maybe we think that. Maybe there's something going on there. That's what Job's friends believed. That was their doctrine. You know, their buddy was sick and suffering 
and endured more than any of us would ever want to endure. And they concluded, man, when they couldn't figure it out, they said, there's something wrong with this guy. That's the problem. The, the problem is, is that he's obviously not as godly as we thought he was. And so that's why the cause of the sickness is. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That doesn't fit the word of God. And it probably doesn't fit most of our experiences either. And so that's, that's a false idea to say, well, that only bad people suffer. The other false idea that we can have around sickness and suffering is, is to imply that if we simply believe enough, then God, is, if we just have enough faith, if I can just muster up enough faith and belief in God, then Jesus is going to come and he's going to intervene in that situation. He's going to work miraculously and, and heal the sickness. And we can develop this attitude or this belief in our immaturity. It says, well, it comes down to how much I believe. How much do I believe? And that's a false idea that doesn't fit scripture and it probably doesn't fit your experience either. And so here's Mary and Martha. They were confident, we're gonna read this, they were confident that if Jesus was there, he could heal and do something about this condition, but we don't get the sense that they're trying to muster up something within their own hearts and lives. And so we read on in verse four, it says this, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? You ever had a sick family member? Man, I, I, I remember, uh, you know, I remember when Lisa's niece was killed by a drunk driver out at the Sumas exit on Highway 1. I'm telling you, we dropped everything. Our whole life went on pause. For a, almost a whole week, we were out there with family. We, we, we were on the next ferry. I remember when my dad got in an accident and he, and he lost his leg. We were here on Wednesday night prayer. I was on the next ferry. I dropped everything. And you've done that for family situations or situations with friends. But not Jesus. When he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I mean, deliberately, Jesus left Lazarus in his sickness. That's why we could say those two ideas that I mentioned about sickness that only bad people suffer or the, or the false idea that, that, that if we just believe enough, Jesus will heal. That's why they're, they're false ideas. Jesus knowingly left Lazarus in his sickness. And maybe you've had times with someone sick in your family, you know the anxiety and the worry and the concern and the fear, and all of the emotions, the despair, and the pain, and the mourning if someone dies that goes away with, that, that, that goes along with someone suffering. And so sickness and fever is going to lead to death for Lazarus. And, and here's the thing, Jesus let it happen. Jesus let it happen. Now I'll tell you this, like when it comes to healing and the miraculous, I believe in the power of God to heal. Don't you? I believe in that. 
I, I believe that there is nothing impossible for God. I, I believe that there's no physical condition that is beyond the power of Jesus to meet that need. There's no affliction. There is no disease. There is no sickness. There is no situation in which Jesus is not sufficient and in which he is unable to to heal or perform or to work the miraculous. We believe in that in this church. But where we tend to get mistaken is this, is to think that our health and our happiness is Jesus' primary concern. That's like the doctrine of the West. That's like the doctrine of the Western church. That's the doctrine of the prosperity, the false doctrine of prosperity gospel. To think that Jesus' primary concern is my health and my happiness. And it's as we mature that we grasp this that, that, and, and understand this, that, that your health and your happiness, even your family's health and happiness, is actually Jesus, not Jesus' primary concern. In fact, I, I would suggest that maybe the reason we don't see more miraculous Maybe we don't see more of the wonders in our culture and in the West. Like we, we think about that. We say, well, how come the church over there is experiencing miracles and, and we don't? And, and I would suggest maybe the reason is, is that in the West, we've decided to make health and happiness the greatest of idols. Our primary concern, we're overly concerned about safety. And comfort. Believe me, I want to be safe. And I want to be comfortable. I, I, I want to be comfortable, but the first and primary concern of the Lord Jesus was not the health and safety of Lazarus. The first and primary concern of Jesus was the glory of the Father. He said this, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, Jesus' first concern in any and every situation is whatever action will bring glory to the Father and whatever action will bring glory to his name and his gospel. And that is actually the purpose of our lives, church. That's the purpose of our existence, not health and safety. The purpose of our existence is to glorify the Father and to glorify his son, Jesus. And that's a mission that's like massive. It's so big, right? It's like that mission is so big, it can encompass every part of your life. Father, be glorified. May your son be glorified. My marriage, my parenting, in my work. Your workplace is a mission, man, because you're there for the glory of God and the glory of the son, Jesus. Your sickness, your despair, your disease, it's a mission for the glory of God and for his son Jesus. And Jesus can intervene at any moment, at any time. But first and foremost is not health and safety. It's the glory of God. Whatever life throws at us, good or bad, the welcome and the unwelcome experiences, may God be glorified through through hearts to to bring glory to his son. Now, when I read this, I think verse five is actually cool. I just, a bit of a footnote. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister 
and Lazarus. I love that the Holy Spirit just like dropped Mary's line out of there, her name out of that line. If you're Martha, you like that. Because it's like Mary gets the praise all the time. It's like, oh, Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I'm slaving in the kitchen looking after my family, serving in the, in the you know, nursery, changing diapers and cleaning up after the church potluck. And there's Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so I just love this, that, that Jesus loves Martha, that the Holy Spirit just said, hey, just so you know, Martha wasn't, Mary wasn't better than Martha. Look at Martha. Let me just drop Mary's name out of here. And so Jesus loves Martha. And so after hearing Lazarus was sick, it says that Jesus stayed where he was for, for two days. And then in verse seven, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're gonna go there again? So, you know, we read about that in John 10. Solomon's colonnade last week, they picked up stones to stone him. And so the disciples said, what are you, crazy? Are you nuts? To go back there again? Jesus answered, verse nine, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not with him. What's, what's Jesus' primary concern, church? The glory of God. And so Jesus says this, don't worry. Why are you worried about my safety? It's still daylight. I'm on the mission of the Father. There are things for me to do before night comes, and night's gonna come. The night when, the, the, the night when I'm arrested, the night will come, and the Father will have that in his hands as well. But until the fullness of time comes, Jesus is implying here, I'm indestructible. I'm safe. And so are you. You know that? Scripture says, before there were one of them, Every one of your days were written in his book. I mean, I'm like totally secure and totally safe until the Lord decides to take me home. And then I, I don't have much choice there. That doesn't mean, you know, you'll play in the traffic. doesn't mean you jump out of an airplane without a parachute or do something Stupid. Remember, Satan tried that with Jesus. He said, jump off the highest point of the temple. You know, test God. Do and, and see if you, you're not dashed against the rocks below. His angels will come and save you. That, that's just foolish. That's foolish. And so we're not to be foolish, but we can be confident. We can be confident and, and live and know and do the work of the Lord without fear, no matter what we face. And so verse 11 says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And so I just like this, you know, back in, you know, the disciples are missing it, but back at Bethany, the picture's this, funeral arrangements. Have you planned a f funeral for a family member? Y you know all the work that goes into that, the preparation of a body, and in that culture, and in that day, and that time, totally different. 
Food's being prepared. Where do you think Martha is? Martha is in the kitchen making food for all the guests and the families that are coming to Bethany to mourn with them. Mary's probably out playing gracious host. I don't know what she's doing. She should be in the kitchen. No, I'm just kidding. And Lazarus was dead. And so Jesus said to the disciples, he says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that he, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I I think, like, I like Thomas. Let's go to him. I, I get I get Thomas's response. Remember when when David's son uh, that was born from the adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, the Lord said that baby's that baby's going to die. And David went and he fasted and he mourned before the Lord and he lay in the presence of the Lord. Uh, but the Lord fulfilled His word and the baby died. And David caught wind of the servants in his household um, saying, "How are we going to tell him?" And so he asked and. And uh, and they said the babies died, and then David got up and washed himself and got back to the work of his kingdom. And they said, "What's the deal? When he was alive, you mourned, and now that he's dead, you're gone." And and David David actually said this. He said, "My son's not going to return to me. I'm going to go to him. I'm going to be reunited with him in death." And and I wonder if Thomas recalled those words of David when he said, "Let's go with him." Because Jesus, Jesus says that right here. Let us go to him. Thomas is like, he's dead. Okay, I guess we're going, we're going to Jerusalem to die with you, Jesus. And, and Thomas, to me, when I read this, he's like comic relief in this story. He's the Holy Spirit injected humor in this story. You know, unf- unfairly, we refer to him as doubting, doubting Thomas, the eternal pessimist. And he gets a bad rap. He may, because he may have been a doubter, but he was a devoted man. Look at him. Let's go. Let's go with Jesus. The other disciples are saying, don't go to Jerusalem, Jesus. Thomas is saying, let's go, Jesus. We'll lay down our lives with you. We'll die with you. He was full of courage, man. Thomas was a man. Like, I, I just, I want to tell you, drive doubting Thomas out of your heart and mind. Thomas was a man of courage. Thomas was a man devoted to Jesus. In the, after the book of Acts, did you know that Thomas met on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea with the other apostles and he packed up his life and he went to India to the state of Kerala and planted churches and preached the gospel and died there as a martyr. Thomas was a faithful man of courage. After the resurrection, remember the, remember. After the resurrection, the disciples locked themselves in a room for fear of the Jews, and Jesus appeared to them. Guess who wasn't there? Thomas. Why? Because he wasn't locked in a room hiding. He was like walking out on the street when everybody else was freaked out. And so I like Thomas. I was thinking about this. I mean, I don't want to pick on a friend, but to me, (laughs) Thomas is like Calvin. If you know Calvin, let, let me tell you about Calvin. Calvin will say it as it is. You never have to wonder, what's he thinking? Out, out it comes. 
And especially if he disagrees with you. Especially if he has a different point of view. But here's the thing about Calvin, and it's the character Thomas had, and I love this about you, Calvin. That's why I wanted to say this. Is that you never had to confuse anything that Thomas said with a lack of loyalty. And that's like Calvin. You never have to, you never have to confuse anything that he says as a lack of loyalty because he's a faithful man as, day, as long as the day is long. And that was Thomas. And I think Thomas probably had bigger muscles than Calvin. <laughs> Just saying. Got scrawny arms back there. Love you, buddy. <laughs> Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So Jesus waited two days, probably spent another couple days uh, making the journey of more than 20 miles, more than 30K. And Lazarus probably died quite quickly after the messenger had arrived to tell Jesus. Verse 18 tells us, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So beautiful to think of Martha. Just picture Jesus coming into town. And, and Martha strapping on her sandals and grabbing her her shawl that was probably wrapped around her mourning and hurrying off to see Jesus. One sister running after Jesus, one sister waiting for Jesus. Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if he had been here, my brother would not have died. There's no rebuke there. There's no rebuke in her words. Just, it's just like the remorseful kind of like statement of faith. It's just like, man, Jesus. I know this, Jesus, that nobody dies when you're present. There's no death in your presence, Jesus. If you'd just been here, you know, my brother would have been okay. And she continued speaking and, and, and quick to affirm her faith in Christ. Verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's an incredible statement of faith right now. Even now, Lord. Even now, the deaths visited our home. I know, Lord. I believe in you. I, I, I know that whatever you ask from God, God, God will give you. And verse 23 tells us, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So I, I love this. Martha's got good theology, church. She affirmed her theology. She affirmed her belief in good theology regarding the resurrection. She believed in the resurrection of the dead and she interpreted the words of Jesus to be speaking of a future resurrection in the last day. Church, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. If this body makes it to the grave before Jesus comes, I am confident that I will be raised from the dead. I believe in the resurrection 
from the dead. You know, that's like totally unique to Christianity. To say we believe in the resurrection of the dead, man. Other religions, it's like, you come back like this or that or reach this state or that state. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. And this is where Jesus speaks another of the seven I am statements that John recorded. Jesus doesn't deny what Martha said about a future resurrection, but he transforms her thinking. He transforms even her theology uh, to, to have better understanding by what he says, and he brings her great comfort. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Man, may that, may, may our spirits understand that. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus answered Martha, and he, and, you know, he said this. On the last day, he's basically saying this. Martha, Yes, your brother will rise on the last day, but Martha, on the last day, who do you think is going to raise your brother from the dead? I am the resurrection, Martha. I am the resurrector. And not only that, Martha, I am life. I raise the dead and, and I give them life after they are raised. I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, I'm the resurrection, which can just happen in a moment at my word. But I am also this. I am the giver of life to those who have been resurrected. I am life. I raise the dead and I give them eternal, everlasting life. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, Martha had the right theology, but I want to tell you what she met. She met the person who fulfilled the theology. Because when it comes to life and death, what matters is your relationship with Jesus. That's what matters. Your relationship with and to Jesus. Jesus asked Martha that. He said, Martha, do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe that even though a man dies, yet shall he live? Do you believe, Martha, that a person who lives and believes in me shall never die? And then Martha gave the most clear confession of belief and faith in Jesus that I think we read in the gospel accounts. It's awesome. Again, you know, I don't know. I've just had like, feel like I've had this history of like saying, oh, Mary's so awesome and there's Martha. But Martha, look at this confession Martha makes for King Jesus. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. See, the resurrection for Martha was no longer just a theology. She had met the person the Son of God, the Christ, who'd come into the world because, because in Jesus, do you know that in Jesus, every doctrine is made personal? In Jesus, every theology is brought right down to a relationship with a man, with the living God. 
So it's a beautiful confession of faith. Verse 28. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here. He's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were in the, ha- in the house uh, consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. An amazing, same, same, she got the same confession of her sister. She knows that where Jesus is present, there is no death. And there's Mary, she's falling at the feet of Jesus because that's what you read. Every time you encounter Mary in the scriptures, that's where you find her. She takes the position at the feet of Jesus. When Martha's slaving in the kitchen, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, as we're going to see in, in John chapter 12, when she anoints Jesus' feet with oil, she's going to come, she's going to get down at his feet, wash his feet with oil, and wipe them, dry them with her hair. Here in her morning, she runs to Jesus and falls at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. You know, we kind of have this this culture around funerals and mourning and death. Very different, obviously, in the Middle East. You know, I imagine it was really dramatic. You know, Mary weeping and then everybody else just joining in and being a, a, a part of that. And that was the custom. And, and we read here that it, that as as they were weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly uh, troubled as, as he saw them overwhelmed with, with sorrow and, and, and weeping. And the original language is interesting when it says this about Jesus, that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It, 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 it means this. It expresses the idea that Jesus was indignant. He got ticked. It's really an interesting response as you're like, see this picture like, Literally, the Greek says this. He snorted like a horse. Isn't that bizarre? That's like strange that they're like weeping. And I think of like a a horse. Like you ever see like a war horse and that hoof starts to hit the ground? That's Jesus, man. Let me out of the gates, Father. In, In the midst of the morning... And, and the weeping, he is deeply moved. It's like implying that there's anger, that there's indignation, that it's like, this, look at man, the son of God was angry. That's a terrifying thought, don't you think? The son of God angry? Angry at what? Well, I would say this, death was not his design. The corruption and the sickness and the disease that it resulted in death and the grave, the work of the devil, the sorrow, and the pain that his creation was experiencing, it was not his plan. And Jesus was moved. Like, 
Like, I think he had the cross in his heart and his mind when that, when that horse stamped its hoof. Father, let me set it right. Father, let me set it right. You know, one day, Jesus set it right on the cross, but one day, Jesus is going to set the whole universe right. He's going to set it all right. He's going to come. He's going to put everything in order. He's going to put it all back in place. No more sin. No more sickness. No more death. No, no more separation. The grave, the devil, done. He's going to set it right. The whole universe, all of creation will be just as he designed. Scripture tells us there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Man, isn't that awesome? No more pain, no more sorrow. And when Jesus was there with his friends, he was angry. Not with people. Angry about sin. Angry about death. Angry about the devil. And he said this, where have you laid him? Man, I'm like, that's like, whew, Jesus, that's like Jesus saying, business time, man. We're about to set things straight here. Where have you laid him? They said, come and see. And then we read this, that, you know, the shortest verse in the Bible, so famously for this, verse 35, Jesus wept. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's like we, we, we don't know why he wept. Like John doesn't tell us. He, just, he wept. The, the crowd assumed, like we're going to read in a second, they, they, they said, see how he loved him. See how he loved Lazarus. And, and I bet that was part of the weeping, that he loved him like he loves you. Weeping over physical separation. Maybe he wept on another level too. Maybe he wept out of sympathy for Lazarus. You know, we go, wow, it's so awesome, Lazarus raised from the dead. Just think about what Lazarus was being taken from to be brought back to. What was he being taken from to be brought back to this physical world where there is sin and death and sickness and disease. Lazarus was being called back into the world and he was going to die again. Lazarus was being called back into to the world where, where sin and death still held the world in its grips. In fact, we're going to read here as we go on in John's gospel, what we're going to discover is this, is that for the religious establishment, Jesus was enemy number one. He's number one. Take that guy out. Number two on their list, guess who it was? Lazarus. We're going to read this in the weeks to come, that Lazarus became a major thorn in the side of the religious establishment. His resurrection was undeniable. His resurrection was undeniable proof to the, the, the power and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, I think, wept because he knew that raising Lazarus from the dead was just signing his death warrant once again. Because the enemies of Jesus were going to determine that Lazarus 
had to die along with Jesus. And so Jesus wept. Wept because of separation. Wept because he had to bring a man back to life. And I think wept because he knew all that Lazarus would go through. And so verse 36 says, so then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. The stone lay against it. We know that that was common to the geography of the area. It's not like you dug a hole in the ground and put a body there because it's stone. Everything's stone and everything's rock. And so burying someone in the ground wasn't easy. So you found a cave, you made a tomb. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor. He's, he's been dead for four days. And, and saying there's an odor is like, that's a mild understatement, isn't it? Like, come on. There'll be a mild odor, Jesus, when we roll back the stone. Be prepared. Uh, no. This is the Middle East. That body's been baking in a tomb for four days. It might be winter, but it's still Israel. And Jesus calls them to this step of faith. This is, this is what faith is. Jesus says, you participate with me now. Roll back the stone. But Lord, but, 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 but. Roll back the stone. He called them to participate with him and they had to choose. Will, will, will I obey? Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. It's interesting because Jesus like didn't pray publicly very often. When you read the gospels, we don't, we always get this picture of his prayer that it was like private. It was happening by himself. There wasn't a lot of people included in that. We don't, we don't read about him when he's teaching that he's like praying publicly and things like that because his, his communion with the Father was, was private. The Pharisees were so much the opposite. They're on street corners and making prayers a great length and, and, and Jesus was communing with the Father moment by moment. He'd already prayed about this situation, which to me is like amazing. He like already knew what the Father's will was. He already knew what the plan was to glorify the Father and so he prayed that those who were watching would know what's happening. And then verse 43. When he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to, to them, unbind him and let him go. That's it's pretty awesome. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 28, that, the day would come when men would hear his voice and they would come out of the grave. He said in, in John chapter 10 that his sheep hear his voice and they obey it. And, and after this brief prayer, he called out to Lazarus. Literally, the language says he called out loudly. 
This is the command. The command. You know that the scripture tells us that? That the dead will rise at the command, at the shout of the archangel. Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come forth. Three words. Augustine said this, that if he didn't say Lazarus, all tombs would have been emptied right at the moment. Oh, that's awesome, isn't it? Lazarus. Like if he had just said, come out, the dead would rise. One day he's going to say it. In this event, it's just like, I mean, it's just such an awesome picture of how Jesus brings life to people. It's such an awesome picture of what's going to happen when he physically returns to the earth again and he, and he calls his saints. The Old Testament saints are raised from the dead and when tribulation saints are raised from the dead and, and you know, Jesus is still calling. The voice that he speaks now is to call us forth to spiritual life. Now, come to me. Calvin, come to me. Thomas, come to me. Mary, Martha, come to me. Jesus is calling spiritually dead people to life, and many who are dead in their sins and trespasses have come to believe because Jesus called their name. This is a long text, so I'm going I'm to wrap it up. I, I know that we're stirring a bit. I can see kids at the back. So let me give you a couple applications, and then we're going to come back to chapter 11 next week, okay? Number one, when God delays, when he delays, he is doing so for his glory. Okay, think about it. He waited two days. Four days have passed. Mary and Martha come and say, Lord, come, come heal our brother. Jesus had way bigger plans than Mary and Martha. He had way bigger things in, in mind. They, they just thought, well, if you, if you come, you can heal my brother from sickness. But Jesus said, no, I'm going to raise him from the dead. My plans are bigger than your plans. But for me to raise Lazarus from the dead, something's going to happen that you don't like first. First, he's going to have to die. And, and so, you know, maybe you're waiting on God for something child who's walked from the Lord or some situation or this relationship. You're praying and you're praying and saying, God, I need you to meet this. I want to tell you, you need to know from the word of God that God has determined this delay for his glory. And if you will continue to pray and seek him, he will bring forth glory for the Father and for his name that was more than you could have asked or imagined. So be patient in the delay. You know, Samson, remember Samson? S Samson's greatest victory took place after he had his eyes plucked out and he was in the temple of Dagon. He cried out to the Lord. There was delay. There was waiting. And then God gave him strength one more and a miracle happened. Second application is this. Yes, number one, delays are determined by the Lord for his glory. And the second application is this. The solution is not something, it's someone. The solution is not something, it's someone. Jesus said this to Mary and Martha, or to Martha. 
I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the solution. Me. I'm the solution. I'm what you're looking for. I'm it. You know, we get, we get, we get in our problem and we go, wow, my, my solution would be I need a different spouse. <laughs> my solution would be I need more money. Sometimes you need more money. My solution would be I need a better church. I don't know. My solution would be this. Look, you're looking for more money? Jesus said, hey, I'm bread. <laughs> looking for direction? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember them in that fiery furnace and just this whole situation getting tossed in there? And they came out of the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar called them out. Why? Because they found Jesus in the midst of the fire. For them, the solution was a person. Well, we just get out of this furnace. Guess what? They stayed in the furnace. Jesus met them in the furnace and that's how they were led out of the furnace. And so delays are determined by the Lord for his glory, but the solution is not something, it's someone. Jesus is the solution. He is the resurrection and the life. And we won't go on this morning. We're going to read about the plot to kill Jesus next week. Would you bow with me in, in prayer? Actually, would you guys stand? I see kids waiting at the back door. I'm sorry for keeping you a little longer this morning. So we'll pray in the service.